0: So the big question is this, how are real estate investors just like us, whether they're a beginner or they've been in this game for years, who don't have a ton of free time, don't have access to off-market deals, and didn't start life on third base? How do we grow a real estate business conservatively to support our families, finally leave the corporate rat race, and build a legacy? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Ed Matthews, and this is Real Estate Underground. This is the Real Estate Underground podcast show number one. This is Ed Matthews, and I'm here with David Haberfeld and my partner in crime, Ron Ferracci. David, thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. Quite frankly, when Ron and I were talking about kicking this podcast off, you were the first name that both of us suggested. So we're really excited to have you and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. So Ron and I have known you for years. And so we know a lot of your stories, but our audience may not. Why don't we start with your background and how you got to where you are today and the varied businesses that you run in addition to your real estate as well.
1: well. I started out and I had this dream of, I watched the real estate market climb in 2003, 4, 5, and 6. I had missed it, but I didn't know I missed it. And so I wanted to jump on And I had a good friend who came back from college after high school. We reconnected on MySpace for the listeners that are old enough to know what that is. MySpace. (laughs) We staged
0: all of us. Right.
1: And so it turned out he had the same dream. He wanted to buy some real estate and rent them out and be landlords. And so we reconnected at the bar and we thought this up at the bar and we followed through with it. And we're still good friends today. And I was addicted. I started out by paying too much for houses that didn't cash flow because I didn't know how to do it. My first four were all terrible, but I learned how to do it right. And going from a landlord to flipping was a natural progression when the market changed, when you could start flipping again around 2014 or so. Yep. And I've been doing real estate since 07. Fantastic. Tell us a little bit more about your business. You mentioned
0: multis as well as flips.
1: Sure. So I started out landlord only. When I was buying properties, I was paying, I knew I was paying like retail. And so I ended up being a landlord. and. I just kept buying and the bank eventually said no after four. I bought four with mortgages. And then I go to get a fifth one and the bank says, no, sir, you can't do that. And I was like, why not? What do you mean? And so that's how I learned how you
2: can't owner occupy all your houses. So you were getting traditional mortgages, Dave. You were putting down some money, going to a bank and and just getting traditional mortgages, residents.
1: So in 2006 and seven, you didn't have to put any money down though. They were just giving them all away. So the times were a little different then. And those were my first four. And then the fifth one, I didn't know what seller financing was, but I did a seller financing one. I didn't even know the words. It was my girlfriend at the time, her stepfather had a one bedroom in the ghetto of Waterbury. He wanted 25 grand for it. It was a one bedroom and the market was still super hot. And I was like, wow, that's like a free piece of property. It's a free condo. 25 grand was the cheapest thing I'd ever heard of. I didn't have 25 grand. I only had 10. And so I said, well, can I give you 10 now? And can I pay you 5,000 a year for three years? And so that's how I got my fifth deal. And so after that, I did figure out some private lending and I was able to keep buying. I was always broke as I ramped up trying to increase my portfolio. And then one day, one day it was like flipping a switch. And I I think it was 2014 where all of a sudden you could sell a property again. Properties were very difficult to sell for a while because banks had stopped lending. And the very first property I sold, I think it was that condo. And I remember that I had it for like four or five, six years, something like that. And I remember doing the math and I think I made $12,000 total. So that equivalent, it's equivalent of about $3 an hour for my labor. (laughs) So I learned a lot. I did it wrong. So I learned how to do it right. So I was able to take advantage of the future
2: of the market on the way down. And so then you pivoted over to flipping at some point. And I think the lesson is, and I've learned this lesson too, is that don't be afraid to pivot, right? I think sometimes people put themselves in a box. Well, I'm a landlord. I'm a wholesaler. I'm a syndicate, I'm this, well, I don't need to learn about wholesaling because I'm a landlord. And I, speaking for me, and I know I speak for Ed, is that, There's times that you have to flip a wholesale will come across my desk. I am a landlord. But if there's a wholesale opportunity, I want to build that muscle. So when that opportunity presents itself, I know how to wholesale, even though I'm not a wholesaler. So good for you for pivoting Then I think that's an important skill to learn. And people don't think about that. They get into their box. Yeah, you got
0: to take what the market gives you.
2: I agree i couldn't agree agree
1: more people that are just landlords there are some times in the market when it's not a great time to be a landlord or when it's not a good time to flip if you were a
2: flipper in 2008 or 9 i'm not sure what you did you lost houses if you didn't play it right right right? i think maybe people get caught up in the emotion myself included you get caught up in the, the market hysteria of it all and sometimes your underwriting in the landlording business gets a little lax and that's when the problems happen and I started like you, David, just back of envelope, buy it for this. I can rent it for this. And you don't think about water sewer. You don't think about garbage and all that. And you think, oh, I, that's how you learn though, right? That's the pain you have to go through. And, and if you can kind of usurp that with education, I think that that's what helps. Can you talk a little bit, I, I go off sideline here, that a mentor of yours was Robin Thompson. What role did she have in taking your business to the next level? Where were you at your business when you met Robin?
1: That's correct. Robin Thompson has done a lot for me in my life. I think I met her 11 years ago. I met her at a C.T. Rhea meeting. I had never been to a C.T. meeting. I owned six properties at the time. I remember that. And I went and I was just so impressed with her speaking from stage. I was like, how have I never heard of this place called C.T. Ria? And so it was amazing to me. And at the end, when she tries to sell you something, I'm like, oh, man, she's trying to sell me something. You can't sell me. So I didn't sign up. So (laughs) I actually followed her for about two years. When she came back to CTria, I did come see her again. I would take the Saturday classes. And the second year, I did sign up for her boot camp. And my only regret was I didn't do it sooner. And I mean, she taught me some of the basics. Out of every speaker I've ever seen, and in my life, I've seen a lot, she gives the most meat and potatoes in her initial speaking from stage thing. She's the one who taught me to always spend a little extra on your faucets and light fixtures and stuff, like for example, and don't mess with functionally obsolete houses was another lesson that I hadn't, I learned it from her. When the ceiling height is too low and the stairway is too narrow, just skip it and go to the next one. I will say that like, I thought I couldn't wait to go to the next CT meeting, but Robin is the best speaker. Everyone after that, I was like, well, oh, all right. Maybe the next one will be like Robin.
2: <laughs> it's
0: hard. There's to- only hard one to- Robin, isn't there? Yeah. There's only one. She's unique. Yeah, she, There's a she, reason is, she gets uh, everything she wants.
2: So that's she, interesting. I didn't is, know So you had already started your business. If you had six properties, I mean, you were well on your way. And I thought you had met Robin prior to that. So that's interesting that you were on first base already, if you will. And that's when you met Robin and she helped take you, I'd say around the plates, I guess, for bad analogy, but I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah. Of the six that I had, four were losing
1: money. One was break even and one was making me peanuts. So, so I'm
2: hearing you were consistent. Oh, good for you.
1: Yes. <laughs> so it went uphill from there. Robin taught me how to do a lot of things better.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So systems and processes and things like that. Do you still employ systems as your systems? You don't have to get into what they are, but systems on running your business because you're a little bit unique. And I thought the reason that you would be such a great guest is because you speak a lot of languages. You're a landlord or you're a flipper. I know you wholesale, but you also own outside businesses Are your processes in your real estate business also apply to some of your offline businesses, such as a car dealership, a sandwich shop? They're all process-oriented. How many crossover do you get on that? Any? Some. Processes and systems are so important, but I have to admit it's one of my weaknesses.
1: It's a personality-type thing, and I try my best, and probably the most useful tool that I employ across all of my businesses is delegation, delegation is one of my strengths, but as far as the process is like, man, I, I can make my own process and my own list. And then I forget to follow my own process like, you begin
2: where you put the list, right? <laughs> so yeah, like it's, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's been a little frustrating for me, honestly. And I, I have no one to blame except myself. It's uh it's just a personality trait.
2: Yeah. I feel you. I suffer from the same thing. I'm not organized by nature. I still like the whiteboard. If you saw my office, I have a four by eight whiteboard and that's, offline stuff and that's how I devise my strategy. But sometimes those simplistic ways can help because sometimes maybe when I first started, I was intimidated by a lot of these big numbers, all these ratios, and you need a slide ruler and all this stuff. And, And sometimes I think that keeps people from moving forward because they think, oh, I didn't go to college, or I don't know calculus, or I don't know these processes. And sometimes just keeping it simple and moving forward is the best approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with that.
1: Yeah. You can talk yourself out
2: of anything.
0: You sure can. Absolutely. Huh? And into something, right? Yeah. So, so David, obviously you've met a lot of folks either through CTRE and also your travels. I meet them all the time. Ron meets them all the time. We like to call them the dreamers, people that want to get into real estate, but never do. They go to every course and they read every book and then they do nothing. What separated you from those dreamers? How did you get going and dive in when you didn't know what you were doing?
1: I think what holds people back a lot is fear and analysis paralysis. Even when people want to do a deal and they have the resources and they're ready, they will overanalyze a deal so much they'll try to talk themselves out of it or they take too long and someone else scoops it up because every good deal will be scooped up if you don't act quickly. And so they never get one and they're only waiting for the perfect deal. I've always been fearless, sometimes to the level of stupidity in businesses and decision-making. So I will make a decision pretty much on the spot for anything and everything. I will choose left or right, up or down, yes or no, really quickly. And I think that has helped me greatly, even though sometimes it's the wrong decision because I decided too quickly. But I mean, if I hit nine out of 10 that way, I think that has greatly aided me is my ability to make a fast decision. An educated
2: okay. fast decision, I think, is a fair statement. Yeah, You're not throwing right. a dart to the dartboard. You'll have some winners, you'll have some losers, but you approached it with an educated hypothesis of this should work. And I think that's key. I so let's talk about minutes. that
0: a little bit. Yeah, I spent 30 minutes with a calculator before I said yes or no. Yeah, right. Right. Just push a button. Yeah, exactly. Just pretending that you're busy, right? Yeah, right. So, in terms of the calculation, when you're looking at a multifamily property, what are the key things that you're looking for to determine yes or no?
1: Geographical area actually counts for me quite a bit. I'm based in Bristol. I like to own around Bristol. I will go farther for a good deal. But the farther away it is, the better the deal it has to be. And as soon as the market changed to where it is now, I'm happy to sell the ones that are far away. I like to manage locally. You're going to laugh at how I chose the money part of it, what kind of profit I made. So when I started out, I just said, I want to do the math and take up my gross rent minus my fixed expenses. And I want to make $1,000 a month. And that was it. There was no ROI, no cash on cash, no cap rate. I didn't know how to do any of that. And honestly, that's never really left me. I still don't bother with the cash on cash returns and stuff because that's so easily manipulated. I can put zero down and make a $100 a month and I have infinite cash on cash. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, right. I see
2: it all the time. I'm making 50% cash on cash. Well, that means you're over leveraged, is what that means. It's not a good indicator sometimes. I agree with you. Yeah, it has its
1: place. But it has I'm, its place, I absolutely. I don't use it. Me neither. These days when I'm buying a multifamily to keep, I either want to build equity really fast, like in a seller finance deal, which means yeah. you know I'll overpay for like a zero percent interest rate, or right. I'm looking for cash flow. So I'm looking for equity cash flow. And the cash flow ones, okay. I mean, I still want to make a thousand dollars a month off of a three family, but I am calculating it better and I'm remembering I learned how to put in vacancy and repair. And sometimes I still skip the capex, if, especially if I rehabbed it. But and then on the flip side, how are you pulling the trigger with flip properties? So with flip properties, I used to, before this crazy hot market, I used to say, I don't want to do anything for less than 30,000 bucks net profit after everything. So when you're flipping a property, things happen and 30,000 can quickly become 20 or 10 or zero. So 30 was my number that I aimed for. As the market gets crazy, I can't tell you what a property is going to be worth anymore. We used to be able to use comps and now I know some people are still using comps, but you don't know what a property is gonna be worth. So I'll I'll tell you a great example of how I've changed my business to go with the market. So when I buy a house to flip, I used to advertise it on Facebook when I got it, when I'm midway, all the time trying to sell it in advance of when it hit the market to try to save the realtor fee Mm -hmm. and because I knew what it's worth, I stopped doing that. Now I list it with a realtor because if I think a house is worth 250, I am amazed when someone pays 290 dollars for it, and I never would have guessed I would have gotten that. So I don't try to sell houses on my own at this point in the market. Everything goes with a realtor, and that's an okay. example of pivoting with the market. So as far as how do I know when I'm going to pull the trigger on it, I got to be safe these days. So my number that was 30 is now 50. I won't do it unless I think I right. can make 50 grand. And the reason is at some point, the market's going to downturn. I don't know when, but it'll happen. And however many flips I'm doing at that moment, I'm going to be kind of stuck with. And I want a $50,000 buffer with those instead of a $30,000 buffer.
2: The musical stop smart. and you have a chair. Yeah, that's the problem. Exactly. That's the problem. I agree with you. Smart. Very smart. Yeah. So David, when you do a flip, and I'm genuinely curious. So being a landlord, I have a spreadsheet and all that. Keep track of vacancies, things like that. When you do a flip. How are you recording how much you spend on counters, how much you spend on lights? Is there a spreadsheet you're using? I write down what I put into it so I
1: know. And then I have a bookkeeper who handles the utilities, taxes, insurance part of it. But all of the materials I know. So, for example, if I have a three family and my guys build me for four water heaters, I would figure that out. And I do it just through Excel.
2: Do you use the same Excel every time and just grows over the years, like my lease is up to 27 pages now because over time it just takes on its own life. Has your spreadsheet grown as you've grown and figured out, oh, I should have a line item for this? It's a little less organized than that, but I, I get a new
1: page every property. So, I mean, there's yep. a bunch of pages on them now. Every property, new page, and I just
2: list them in order. So if you don't mind asking, this spreadsheet, you, you have your materials list, what you spent. Do you use that spreadsheet going in to say, and it'll tell you what your projected profit is or you sort of, you know it in your head and then you keep track of it with your spreadsheet or do you use your spreadsheet on the purchase side too to see what you're going to make if it goes according to plan? Make any sense?
1: Yes, so my spreadsheet is not that fancy. I actually use pen and paper.
2: Yeah, I don't blame it. Yes, so do
1: I. I walk through a house and I write down what it needs and what I estimate the repairs to be. I ballpark it. And another thing from Robin Thompson, I add 5000 for fudge factor for missing. That's a Robin Thompson lesson. And I'm usually within 10%. So it works.
2: It's yeah. pretty
0: darn good. So how has the prices exploding over the last 18 months or so? How's that affected that spreadsheet? How are you calculating costs these days?
1: Oh, I'm still kind of eyeballing it and I've been wrong more often. So maybe I'm a little less than 10%. Yeah. But I also have my partner, Adam, in the construction business who is able to calculate that in real time. And so he has been able to take the last few rehabs and give out a much more accurate number. Unfortunately, higher, but accurate.
0: (laughs) At least you know what you're getting into, right? Yeah. So David, I've known you for a few years now, and, and I know that you've worked with Robin, and she's been a tremendous mentor to you. And I know that you've worked with other folks as well. What's the best advice you ever got? Who gave it to you? Some of the best
1: advice I ever got is to say no more. I used to chase everything. And I only got that advice like three years ago. (laughs) I would chase every money-making opportunity. So a good example, like one time my buddy is like, hey, mattresses have a really high markup. Let's open a mattress store. And I was like, all right, cool. He showed me the numbers on paper and they worked. We were trying to figure out how to do it. And that one didn't get off the ground. But like, what am I doing in a mattress store? Now, I have some exceptions to this cuz I've done I've gone into some other businesses but I made sure that they were structured in a way that was favorable to me time wise. I want to be the owner but not the operator. So that's okay, but if you're the operator, right. you are advertising or marketing or ordering supplies or god forbid being the salesman, that would have been worse. These are things you got to say no to more and that was great advice for me. And and chasing every house i had the inside track on a house that was in a nice town no one else got a shot at it but the owner of it was my former accountant and he just wanted too much money for it but i still bought it because i was the only guy who could get a shot at that house and i ended up losing a few bucks on it deal fever
2: yeah yeah Yeah. it's a thing
1: don't be afraid to say no someone else will come along
2: yeah. Right. I see it all the time. So our students, they're required on the multifamily side to send their deals to me prior to moving on. And I say no far more than yes, because it just does not make sense. And I get pushed back, but Ron, I really want to get this building. It's not about acquisition. It's about the right acquisition. We're here to make money, not to close deals. Absolutely. So I run into it all the time, deal fever. And I suffer from it too. Yeah. I want to do the deal. Yeah. We all do, but they're more
1: profitable, right? they're good for now yeah they have to make that fifty thousand dollar number roughly and that means that people are going to pay more than me every time so i'm not
0: doing as many flips these days i'm doing a lot less yeah but it also makes your life a little easier too because there's fewer moving parts in your world and those fewer moving parts are even more profitable so you can do less with more or you can make more money doing less if you line them up right buying investment real estate is both thrilling and sometimes stressful without a lending expert by your side most investors don't stand a chance that's where ctrea funding comes in ctrea funding was founded by investors to help investors just like you fund their deals whether you're buying a single family rehab an apartment building or really any investment property our team will understand your deal and help you close quickly go to ctreiafunding.com Or call us
2: at 860-876-0572. Ed, right now, you're doing some flips as well. Are you seeing the same things that the supply lines, along with the prices, are bottlenecking? And that has a ripple effect, right? So if you can't get cabinets right now, you need to plan for that. Because if you acquired a flip with hard money, now your hard money costs are skyrocketing because you're delayed for months. That brings you into the winter time. Now you're going to have to hold it for another four months. I'm sort of spitballing this, but you got to kind of be a future seer and understand how those supply lines could massively take away your profit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we buy through direct we're online, as well as texting emails, you know, when the sellers are willing to let us communicate that way. And the fact is that when we put something on the contract, our first move is to start ordering exactly those things, right? Cabinets, appliances, those things are on order two, three weeks before we even close on the property. And that is something that's new that we've started to do over the last eight, 10 months, mainly because of COVID supply chains are completely jacked up and costs are also pretty darn high these days. So we're way out in front of it. So by the time we're ready for kitchen cabinets, they've been sitting in the garage for a month.
2: Good for you. I think the lesson there is to be proactive, not reactive when you can. Absolutely. My default nature is to be reactive. So I struggle with that, but I have to work to be proactive. But I do try to look into the future and what are some future bottlenecks? What are some efficiencies I can realize? And I think you should do that in any business. And David, you're in the car business as well. So with car prices right now are crazy. So you have to kind of look into the future with even in that business. So it transcends real estate. Labor. I don't know if you're having a hard time finding workers for your other businesses, David. Has that been a problem that you're seeing on the front lines that you have to deal with? Absolutely. I cannot even explain how
1: we're in this market with labor and materials and there, there are shortages of things. Nuts, crazy. Who's buying all of the screwdrivers? Like, why? Why is there a shortage of this thing? Some of them are explainable and some of them are demand, but some of them are just inexplicable. Like, where did they all go? Or why did they stop getting produced? And labor, I've seen some people online trying to be like, oh, giving away the, the unemployment benefits, the additional unemployment benefits is not the reason for the labor shortage. It's because people aren't paying enough, not a living wage. And I'm like, man, have you ever lived in the real world?
0: Not true, right? Right. Yeah, that is not true.
1: Yeah, let me, it's not true at all. Let me explain to everyone why I went to work when I was younger. I went to work because I didn't want to starve to death. So, (laughs) if you don't want to starve to death, you have to go and earn money so you can buy food. I also enjoyed having a roof over my head and clothing. Those are nice things to have. So, now that we've made it so that when you give away free money and people don't have to find the money for the basics, the necessities, food, Shelter, clothing, and say a vehicle maybe. If you have enough to cover that, there are many people, not all, but many people who will choose not to do any more than the basics because they don't really want to work. Because does anyone really want to work? You work for money, for return, reward, incentives, perks, whatever you work for. It is crazy to me that there are some people who say that the extra free unemployment money is not hurting the labor market. If you're afraid you're going to run out of money, you're going to get back to work.
2: Amen. I, I. You know One thing this whole experience, 2020, COVID-19, it taught me a lesson is to be ready and be proactive in taking some lessons from this last year because this is not a one-off. People is like it's it's once in a generation pandemic. But like I said last week, it's something every six or seven years, whether it's 9-11, whether it's the 2008 financial crisis, now COVID. So in six or seven years, we're going to have something else is going to happen. And so each time it happens, let's build on that, learn some lessons, get some efficiencies, and hopefully during the next pandemic, we'll be better equipped. And we're always going to feel that pain, but perhaps we can do something to minimize it the next time around by learning from our experiences.
0: I agree. Yeah. Without a doubt. All these different situations make us smarter. And if they don't, you need to check yourself. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's impossible to predict, right? So you have to be ready. I always joke with my team that when we're planning for a project, I imagine mushroom clouds on the horizon. Let's plan (laughs) for that. And then when those things don't happen, we're pleasantly surprised and we're a little more profitable than we expected. Wonderful. But we always plan for the worst case scenario. And it's weird with COVID, I thought we were, for my business at Clark Street, I thought we were planning for the worst case scenario and then COVID hits. And we immediately realized that the reserves that we typically carry for our multifamily business, I doubled them. And I used our flip business to double them. That way, if and when tenants were pretty rigorous about screening our tenants. But the fact is that even in the best case scenario of With these tenants, a lot of those folks failed to perform for one reason or another. A lot of it wasn't their fault, but there's an economic reality. If there's money not coming into your tenants' pockets, it's not coming your way either. And so we needed to plan for that. And so we now, we went from a three-month reserve to a six-month reserve in our multifamily business. And thankfully, we had a pretty healthy flip business going that we could afford to do that. And so we deferred our profits. So sometimes even in the best plan, what was it, Mike Tyson that said, everybody's got a plan until you get hit, right? And uh, we got hit. So yeah, right on.
2: But you learned from okay. it and your you know, business will sure. be better off. Without a doubt. Your business will be better off as a result because you're going to realize those choke points and those efficiencies and things like that. Because if you don't learn from it, 100%. I humbly submit that Darwinism will make sure you're out of the
0: business after a while. You yeah. should go get a job. Yeah, you really should. <laughs> not for everybody. Guys. Entrepreneurship's yeah. not for you. No, I, exactly. amen, amen. Yeah, yeah if it were well, easy, everybody would do it. So, David, this has been a tremendous time spent with you. I'm just curious, do you read technical books like business books and real estate? And if so, what's your favorite business book? I'm actually not a reader,
1: and I wish I was. I just have a hard time getting through a book. I just haven't been a reader. It'll be no surprise that the business book that changed my life the most would be Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Same. And anyone who hasn't read it should definitely read it, of course. I mean same. One, it's the Bible. Yeah. Everyone has yeah. the same response about that book, but I'm not a reader. I learn on Facebook, I learn from articles, and I learn from other people.
0: Yeah, I've gotten into audiobooks myself because it's the entrepreneurial ADD that rolls around in my brain that every shiny object takes my focus off of what I'm trying to do. So I'm a big fan of Audible, and that's how I do it. But absolutely. Yeah. And I would submit that Rich Dad, Poor Dad qualifies not only as a business book, but also as a real estate book because that's the one that got me hooked. So David, you've done a lot of deals and we've actually seen a couple of them in the news uh, over the last uh, few months. (laughs) For our listeners, what is a deal that you're particularly proud of? You and I have talked about a bunch of them, or maybe even a cautionary tale, because we've all had those as well. Some of my
1: favorite deals are the ones that nobody else gets to see. They come to me through networking or Facebook or through word of mouth, but I don't know that there's anything super special about them, but I just had my third eviction go out yesterday since the virus started. And there's definitely some lessons there. It's a lesson of how to turn a winner into a loser by accident. Maybe like four or five years ago, I purchased a house in Thomaston. It was in pretty tough shape, very tough shape. And the owner had gotten sick and she was going into some kind of home. And I bought the home for like 22000 I think it was. So it was, you know, it's hard to go wrong at 22000 And the house was livable. It wasn't nice, but you could move in tomorrow if you were so desperate. So I decided I didn't want to rehab the house because the house was just funky, like uh, functionally obsolete. It's like, it's a Robin lesson. Don't do the functionally obsolete ones. However, for $22,000, right I'm gonna buy the $22,000 house. So I end up selling this house to a fellow investor who early claimed to be an investor for 40 and I seller financed it. So I didn't think I was being too greedy and I seller financed it. And I think the interest rate was like 6% or something like that. It wasn't crazy. And he was going to renovate it and sell it or renovate it and rent it. He had the option and he hadn't decided yet. And so this guy proceeded to be quickly overwhelmed by the rehab. He had barely started it. And so he rented it as is to some bad people who didn't pay him any rent. And so he started not paying. And so it probably took me a year and a half to get the house back. And then once I got the house back, I go to start the eviction and then the virus hits. (sighs) And so I couldn't evict. So these people probably live there for free for like three years, four years. And I just got them out yesterday. And so during that time I had to pay the taxes and insurance on the house for all the time he owned it and all the time I owned it since and add that to the 22, I probably own it for like 45 maybe now. And so I just got it back. It's even, even worse shape than the terrible shape. I got it in when I first bought it and I'm so sick of this house. I'm not going to renovate it. I'm going to just list it on the open market any day now and see what happens. And maybe I'll get lucky and someone will be willing to pay a lot because deals are hard to get, or maybe I'll break even, or maybe even I'll lose a little bit and trusting the wrong people and not doing your due diligence and seller financing to someone who doesn't have a track record. Those yeah. are some lessons that I hope people take away. Yeah, um, Don't
0: seller finance to newbies. Without I'm some skin in the game or something. Yeah. Yeah, they got to have something. Something, right? Up. Yeah. One thing we've started doing along those same lines, David, one of the things is that uh, we use a quick claim that we put in escrow. So, when we're seller financing something and we're selling it off to even a newbie for that matter, although most of the folks that we work with are guys like you, we'll have our attorney put a quick claim in escrow. So if they're late for three out of 12 months in a particular year or six months in a row, there is no foreclosure. It's just a quick claim that we file with the state. Everybody signed it or the town and everybody signs it already and it's done. So there is foreclosures. So a little quick tip. I started started doing Um, that,
1: but I didn't know about that when I did this deal. And I do that now. Good. And so your attorney
0: holds the quick claim? It actually goes into the escrow. So we use Catech. They actually hold it. Really? Did not know that. Yeah. Pretty cool. I can't say that we've been doing it for years because I started doing it about six months ago. So <laughs> That's how you learn, right? Met, I learned maybe, something myself. <laughs> yeah, maybe David and I met the same guy who told us that we were yeah, we right. doing it right. <laughs> They're all teachers <laughs> in the end, aren't they? Absolutely. absolutely. I've learned more over a beer than I ever did at college. Amen. I love wow. it. I love yeah. it. So, David. I'm curious, when you're not talking about real estate or chasing deals or starting a new company or buying a sandwich shop or running your car dealership, what else do you like to do? There was a lot of years yeah. when I didn't have any of that, but I liked working. So I guess you could say I
1: was just doing that. But in yeah. recent years, I've spent a lot of time boating, learned to enjoy boating. And nice. I've started to travel more, but the traveling, a lot of it is business related. I enjoy traveling for business related events, masterminds, coaching, trips like that. It's.
2: I'm hearing tax deduction. Oh, and they're all tax <laughs> one Absolutely. Of
1: the, one of the things I'm trying to increase in my business is short-term vacation rentals. And I'm looking in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And so I'm going down there to look and I stay a few days. And oh, is that a Excellent. business trip yeah. or is that a
0: pleasure trip? You know? Depends. Yes. On asking, right? <laughs> you bet. Yeah. I'm in Iowa at my daughter's softball tournament as we sit here and talk. And in about two hours, I'm going to look in an apartment building. And how about that? This is now a business trip. Imagine, so, uh, the Yeah. Yeah. It's legitimate, yeah. right? you know? Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah, I, I intend on buying it if its numbers
1: work. I enjoy just yeah. hanging out with other people that are like-minded and teaching them real estate stuff. I know that when I started, if I had a mentor or a Robin Thompson from the day I started, I think my path would have been different and my journey would have been shorter. And so when I have the ability to share information, I always try to make the extra effort to share the information on Facebook or to have a conversation with somebody who just doesn't know the answer yet. And if I can make their journey shorter, it makes me feel good. And I, share I spend a lot of time doing that.
0: Yeah. And I know you do because I work with a lot of the folks that you mentor as well. So it's a small community. And it was one of the main reasons why we wanted to, you to be our first guest is because not only have you been very successful and you've learned a lot of great lessons, but you also give back in a pretty major way. So thank you for all that you do. If people do want to get in touch with you, either on social media or directly at your office, what's the best way to reach out? The best way is Facebook. I'm a Facebooker. i
1: messenger all the time. You'll probably have the spelling of my name in the podcast, I'm sure. If you're listening, send me a message so I know why you're adding me. I don't add people that I have no communication with. But if you send me a message and say, hey, saw your podcast, would love to connect. I'm in real estate or want to be in real estate. Add me on Facebook.
2: You know, David, you actually do an excellent job on Facebook. You use it as a business tool. And I think the zeitgeist out there is that, oh, Facebook's for your Aunt Mildred's cookie recipes and things like that. And that's just not true. It's a business tool that everybody should be using and get over the notion that it's a social network. It's a business network that happens to have a social component to it if you use it right. Sure. I can give a couple of quick Facebook tips for the people that are A little less Sure.
1: who haven't seen mine. So I post every single day. I have content every single day and over the years I'm able to recycle it. So every day I wake up and I look at my time hop app and I see what I wrote in previous years and I select one or two or three that were good ones or funny or entertaining and I repost it. So if you wonder how I have time to post so much or how to write so much content, the answer is that like 50% of what I post, I've already written in the past. It's a huge time saver because I don't have time to write so much. I post to entertain. I post quotes of the day, jokes of the day, funny stories, pictures that I think others will enjoy, things of value to build an audience. And so people look forward to my posts and people hopefully think they're funny and hopefully think they're informative and I get a lot of good feedback. So I think I'm hitting the mark there. And then when I need something in business, my audience is already watching. So when I have a house for sale or a car for sale, or I need to hire someone, or I need something business related, I can post And someone always responds and has whatever it is I need. I don't count favors on Facebook. So if someone asks me for five things in a row and I give it to them, the universe gives me everything I need every time. Like there's almost nothing I can't get done over social media. And the best tips that I can give people on social media are don't use it to vent and complain. People are very turned off to that. They don't want to follow you if you're venting and complaining often. And then all the divisive topics like Everyone has an opinion about nearly every divisive topic that faces our country and our people right now. And it's not important to share your viewpoint on social media. It is not important. I know that it feels like you want to, and you want other people to know where you stand. And if you do it, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying you can't. And who am I to say what you can post or don't post, but when you post, all about politics and all about left and right and all the divisive topics, you're not someone that people tend to follow as much. You get a lot less yeah. activity, interaction. And when you post things that you need for business, some of the people watching are probably going to be like, ah, oh, you know, I don't like that guy. His views are a lot different than mine. I think he's not a good person. Yeah. And you might lose the
0: business because of it from some percentage. So true. following. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Yeah, our rule of thumb is that we're producers of social media consumers, right? No one cares what I think about the election. That's right. <laughs> but they might care about what I think about how to make money buying a multifamily or one of the other businesses that we're in, right? Amen. Great advice. Great advice. David, thank you so much for your time today. You delivered once again. I always feel like I'm getting a little smarter every time I talk to you. Thank you very much. And yeah, I thank you, appreciate very, very much. Uh, your, awesome. uh, your wisdom and your experience. I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to
1: seeing this online and I hope some people got something of value out of this. Great. Thank you so much. David. We really appreciate
0: it. This has been the Real Estate Underground podcast, a CTRIA presentation. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. If there's a specific topic you want us to cover, post it in the comments. For more information on the Real Estate Underground podcast or CTRIA, go to realestateundergroundpodcast.com or CTRIA.com. Until next time, happy investing.